Hi again, everybody. John Porteous of the Lovells Township Historical Society here, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. Welcome back. Hey, new listeners, welcome aboard. Uh, this week, we've got a, uh, a very special guest. Uh, Richard and I are going to sit down with Chris Wood, who's the uh, president and CEO of uh, Trial Unlimited National. So um, rather than me drone on, uh, let's let Chris have the show. Here we go. Hey again, everybody. John Porteous here with Richard Perry and our very, very special guest, Chris Wood. Uh, Chris, welcome. How are you this morning? I'm great, John. Good to be with you and Richard. Hi, Chris. Super excited to have you. Uh, Listeners, if you're unaware, and I don't know how you might be, but uh, Chris is our current president and CEO of uh, Trout Unlimited nationally. And... um, Aside from your leadership role there, um, golly, you've got quite the resume, Chris, Uh, an author, a leader. (laughs) Um, We've got you, uh, I think, uh, Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame inductee, perhaps? (laughs) (laughs) We've got you doing all kinds of wonderful things, and... uh, I think maybe of a of an immediate deal. Um, nice job to the organization on uh, the Bristol Bray outcome. Oh uh, well, you know that is <clears throat> we're not quite done yet. But I'm reminded of the old Monty Python skit. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. But, uh, we're still that's going what on. <laughs> But so we're, well, thank you. I mean, we're, we've come quite a distance. You know, 15 years ago, I think most people would have said that the prospect of uh, stopping one of the world's largest deposits of copper from being developed in the headwaters of Bristol Bay was a long shot at best. And right now, we're probably just a month or two away, maybe a couple months away from having EPA uh, reinstate the protections of the Clean Water Act for the Bristol Bay watershed, which would effectively um, eliminate the risk of industrial-scale mining, which is just hugely significant. And, you know, just I was talking yesterday to a group of uh, people in the fly fishing business side of things, and I likened where we are today with trying to remove the four lower Snake River dams as analogous to where we were 15 years ago with Bristol Bay. And I'm as confident that we will be able to take out the four lower Snake River dams over time and help to recover Snake River salmon and steelhead as I am that we will keep that remarkable Bristol Bay fishery intact. That's awesome. That's awesome. And yeah, I, de- I definitely wanted to talk, uh, have you talk a little bit about the snake because, to your point, very important. Yeah, they're, you know, those, it's interesting. You know, the, the 1950s sounds like a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago that in Idaho, they had a two or a three month fishing season for salmon. And you could keep two fish a day. And we haven't had a fishing season in Idaho since 1977. 
and were and all the dams, the four lower Snake River dams, all came online after the 50s, and we're now down to one to two percent of our wild salmon and steelhead runs in the Snake River Basin. And the reason that's such a problem, it's not only because we have a mission interest in, you know, protecting and restoring those creatures, but right now the Snake River Basin harbors about half of all of the cold water habitat in the West. And scientists predict that by 2080, that percent will grow to about 65% because as the climate warms, the high elevation habitat of the Snake River Basin and the fact that it's so high quality, 40% of it is either wilderness uh, or roadless lands that are protected. Um, if, if we want to have a future with salmon on the West Coast, it's imperative that we recover the Snake River Basin. And the only way to really recover the Snake River Basin is by taking out those four dams. And this is this is just not a national effort, but a, a huge grassroots effort throughout that watershed, is it not? No, that's exactly right. I mean, um, and, and, and and you know, and the thing is, John, that we can do this in a way that makes all of the affected interests who are dependent on the status quo. Whole, right? We can we can figure out a way. We can replace. We can extend the irrigation pipes. We can uh, instead of barging grain downstream, we can use the rail system. There's not one thing we couldn't do for the people who depend on those dams. But the fish, they need a river. They need an intact river, and. Um, it's been tremendous to see the response of EU chapters from across uh, the Pacific Northwest and really across the nation. And my hope is, uh, my hope is that we'll be uh, able to do in the Snake River Basin what we were able to do um, in the uh, uh, in Bristol. <laughs> okay, no worries, no worries. Well. Chris, you, you were you were alluding to the not only the national effort, but the the collaboration between all of the you know TU chapters uh, in the Pacific Northwest and and other interested groups, and it's it's that collaborative spirit that I find super exciting. I I, I think that helped with Bristol. I, I I trust that it will you know yield the same result with the snake. Um, I've got to imagine that there's there are a couple other um, how do I want to say it, priorities that uh, are on the radar right now. It's it's, it's it never seems to be a single issue. That's right. Well, look, I think we actually refer to our form of conservation as collaborative stewardship. That's what we call it, and um, I think to you is so able to punch above our weight so well because there's nothing that we don't do in partnership with others. There are very few things that we do on our own. Um, you know, I think about our, our chapters across the country. You know, they work with state fish and game agencies. They work with county commissioners. Uh, they work with town planners, town engineers. 
they work with watershed groups, other conservation groups in their uh, in their areas. And then our state councils do the exact same thing at the state level. And we frankly mimic their behavior at the national level. And that's why we were able to prevail or we will be able to prevail in the snake. Um, it's why I do believe we will prevail. Um, I'm sorry, in Bristol Bay. It's why I do believe we will prevail on the snake. You know, right now there's an effort to reestablish the protections of the Clean Water Act to intermittent and ephemeral streams. And I think we will prevail in that regard, again, because of our ability to organize and bring together people from across the political spectrum to argue for, you know, common sense conservation, which is essentially what our form of collaborative stewardship is. And, and I, I find that so awesome, especially in this uh, day and age when we see some occasional divisive behaviors. It's so wonderful that here we have uh, something that I think can truly be labeled as a as a is a bi bipartisan uh, collaboration. There's uh, people That's are able it. to put some of these other differences aside and unify for the common good that's that's exactly right you know i mean um i think my favorite definition of conservation is the application of common sense to common problems for the common good and i love that yeah i think i think that's something that tu is we're uniquely excellent (laughs) at at applying that approach to conservation. And I think it, it serves us well. I mean, look, there were many, so we were working uh, during the Trump administration very closely with the White House and with EPA. And there were many in the conservation community who disagreed with that approach. They thought that, you know, the, that we shouldn't waste our time uh, talking to the White House. But my gosh, President Trump denied that permit. The Corps of Engineers, under his leadership, ultimately denied the 404C permit that the Pebble Mine needed to get started. It was it was Trout Unlimited's litigation um, against the lifting of the earlier protections that prompted the EPA to hopefully reestablish even stronger protections here in a couple months. But you know, you, I think one of the key things there's two lessons that I've learned at Trout Unlimited that I think are really important, and and one is. It's never about the people. It's about the policies. Don't make it personal. And the second is there's no end to the amount of good that you can do if you're willing to give credit to other people. And, you know, we try to live that way. (laughs) I like that a lot. And, you know, the last time I checked, trout really aren't political. (laughs) They just just (laughs) want to swim. (laughs) They just need cold, clean water every day. That's it. Exactly. I, you know, in, in, at the risk of, of oversimplification, um, I, I, a lot of it goes back to, to Art Newman saying, you know, uh, take care of the fish and the fishing will take care of itself. And it's okay. it's amazing how, what, what staying power that simple little phrase has had, you know, since since the infancy of Trout Unlimited. And, and 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 I have right in front of me here in my office the philosophy of Trout Unlimited signed by Art Newman. Um, Excellent. In, 
2009 when we were at our 50th anniversary uh, celebration in Michigan. And I look at this every day and it's, he closes that. I know you both probably have it memorized, but he closes that philosophy by saying it's appreciating our trout, respecting fellow anglers and giving serious thought to tomorrow. And that was as, that's as true today as it was 60 years ago when he first came up with that. Yeah, right on, right on. The, uh, well, and to that end, we'll, I take, we'll take a little segue to offer our listeners. We've had the, uh, the honor and the, the pleasure of having you visit the museum and uh, <laughs> take, a fo- uh, take a photo next to uh, uh, Art's cardboard cutout <laughs> that sits in our, uh, in our Art Newman uh, replica of his shop in Monagas, which was kind of a trial philosophy mecca for a long time. Well, you know, I want to get back there. That was a wonderful day, and I, I don't think I told you this, but I walked out of there with three rods, a bamboo, a graphite, and a fiberglass rod that Art built, um, and I have them framed in a big conference room here um, to honor his incredible legacy. And another story, I, I probably told you this when we were together a few years ago, but I was with Art before he passed, maybe maybe a month or two before he passed. I could have the time wrong, but it was close to the end. And I sat in his, uh, in his living room next to him, and uh, <laughs> we had a really nice conversation. And before I got up to leave, he leaned over and punched me in the leg and said, don't give up the fight for trout. Kid. <laughs> well, well, if there's a parting blessing, that's a, a big league one right there. And you know, that may be the first and last time I was punched by a 97 year old man. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I mean, throughout time, Chris, you, you, you've offered some, just some incredible guidance and, um, I was, uh, oh, and I, I apologize. I don't even know the source of the quote, but it, it went somewhere along the lines that the, that the public lands remain, or what remain, I guess, of, of the great American migration. They're the anvil upon which the character of the nation was hammered out. That's and right. Yeah. It that's those are powerful words. <laughs> And they're just not well, words, though, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> they have the, the, the added advantage of being true. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, this is a uh, – I used to call the public lands an American birthright, and I was sensitized that that is – because it is unique to being an American that we have this legacy of public lands, right? They are, they are the equivalent of our pyramids in Egypt or the great art museums in Europe. Like that's what we have. And, and they are the anvil upon which the character of the nation was developed. I mean, it's just a fact. The, the point that I have been made more aware of lately is that many of those lands were the ancestral homes of uh, Native Americans. And uh, that's one of the things that I'm really proud about to you is that we have these tremendous relationships with state 
resource agencies and great public land management agencies like the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management, the great management agencies like the Fish and Wildlife Service. But it's our partnership with uh, Native peoples that I think really is one of the cool differentiating features of TU. You know, we talked about Bristol Bay. We wouldn't have won that campaign, and it's not quite there yet, but we're almost there, if it weren't for the really powerful relationships we built with people that live in the Alaska Native villages up there, like Igiyagig and King Salmon and Dillingham. And, uh, you know, it's, it's partnerships with tribes like the Nez Perce that uh, we have today that ultimately I think will be uh, the, the, the tipping point that leads us to being able to take out the Snake River dams. I just think we're equal opportunity conservationists at TU. Will, if you care about, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> you care about protecting and reconnecting rivers and streams, we will work with you. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, it's in. You know, Richard and I have the the good fortune to be in, involved with a, a rather dynamic chapter locally. Uh, the, the Mason Griffith Founders uh, chapter, uh, currently led yep. by Karen Harrison, and uh, with a legacy of amazing leaders before her as well, um, and just it, it it truly is incredible that it's not not just a bunch of people independently doing this, but it's it's just a wide ranging. Group, you know, as you point out, native peoples, uh, people that may not even be trout anglers, that right. <laughs> that are that are coming and, and understanding not only the environmental impacts but the economic impacts to the communities as well. One of the one of the more powerful things that I learned about the organization a few years ago. So we all have been living through COVID and. And, and discovering Zoom calls, which I, I had never previously. Um, so we, we developed a new strategic plan, right? The, we do this as an organization every, we're like the old Soviet Union. Hopefully we do it to greater effect than that. But we developed these five-year strategic plans. And um, part of this process was at the beginning of COVID. So I had a series of like town halls, Zoom webinars or town halls where I just listened to chapter leaders and listened to council leaders and took input from people. And one of the amazing things I discovered was that in some cases, 50 to 75% of the people who participate in TU activities, you know, the stream cleanups or um, community science projects or tree plantings or stream habitat restoration projects, they don't belong to TU. They're not even members of the organization. They're just, and they may not even, to your point, they may not even fish. They just want to make the places that they live and they love better. And, and that is part of the, what I think is so ultimately powerful about who we are as an organization. We make God's creation better. <laughs> it's just what a wonderful thing to know that you are leaving behind a richer land and water legacy for your kids than the one you inherited. I mean, that's so affirming and so hopeful to me 
and I think that's part and parcel of, of what Trout Unlimited is all about. Yeah, no, I agree. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Richard. Sorry. We're in three different places today, so it's getting confusing. But I think one of the core uh, benefits of TU is that uh, it's raising awareness that we just have to be responsible stewards of the uh, of the environment, you know, and practicing conservation and cold water uh Conservation is a smart thing to do, regardless of whether you're a fisherman or uh, whatever, a sportsman at all, because it just makes your place a better, uh, better planet to live on. That's it. That's it. You know, we're we're literally making the world a better place every day, day in and day out, at the grassroots level, at the state level, with our 280 or 300 professional staff that are spread all around the country. You know, we are singularly focused on making the earth a better place. Who could be against that? <laughs> Couldn't agree more. I mean, it's it's like um, I, I, I liken it to when we were introduced to the phrase in scouting, always leave it better than you found it. Yep, that's and, exactly and, right. And it's, it's, it's such a simple phrase, and it's so powerful. And, and it's, and it's working. <laughs> it's, it's working slowly but surely. That's exactly right. My, I wasn't a Boy Scout, but I was educated by Jesuits. And the, the phrase that we, they used was, be men and women for others. And, and oh, that's, what, that's what we do. You know, we, we leave things better than we found them. And we do it for, for the benefit of people who we know will come after us. It's, it's an incredibly optimistic and forward-looking um, approach to life. I mean, really, I mean, it is, it's our mission, but it, it's almost more than that. You know, there's a, I think, I don't want to get, uh, you know, I don't want to go over the deep end here, but uh, people who, people who support to you are, are purpose-driven people. Agreed. Agreed. And it's not, you know, so many of the, the leadership that I, I've had the pleasure of meeting throughout the years it's it's not as if they're single thread. This is not uh, always their only concern. They're they're active in a myriad of other activities as well, all with the same you know overarching goal of just make it better. That's it. Yep. I love it. I love it. Well, it must give you a great deal of pride to lead such a, a dynamic organization that way. Oh, it gives me great joy. It gives me great joy. Um, you know, I when I was in high school, I I actually thought about being a priest until, um, you know, puberty kicked in and the vow of chastity became pretty too far. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, Chuckling with you, sir. Not, not <laughs> yes, understood. Of an onerous <laughs> obligation, yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, I think this is the next best thing to to uh, living that life of service. I, I I would concur. It's it's a wonderful way to do it. Um, we've got. Did you grow well, up fishing and hunting, Chris? No, not just the opposite. Uh, we were my dad, who just passed away a couple months ago, um, was voted one of the hundred best athlete or hundred best basketball players in the history of Newark, New Jersey. And uh, so sports was our thing. And um, I didn't, 
start hunting until I was in my 30s, and I didn't start fishing until I went to college. And uh, I had a, a a kid who a special needs kid who was I was part of the Big Brother program, and his therapist thought that fly fishing and fly fishing in particular would be therapeutic for him. Um, and so I picked up a fly rod and what the therapist didn't understand was, you know, how many complicated Gordian knots that I could create in my, not just in in my tippet, but on my fly line. Um, (laughs) it's, It's remarkably peaceful. It's remarkably relaxing when you're good at it. <laughs> and it's not, it's not necessarily uh, the best uh, form of therapy, I think, when you're learning it, unless you want to get really, really frustrated. Yeah, it takes a while for that Zen thing to kick in. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, well, I, I, I will say, though, that it, it, Volker, even if you end up you know, uh, perhaps getting skunked for the day, you're doing so in a beautiful environment. <laughs> and, and I think Volker kind of nailed it that way. No, that's, yeah, the fisherman's, isn't that called the fisherman's prayer? Uh, uh, testament yeah, of a fisherman or something like that, yeah. It's, I yeah. know exactly what you're talking about. Um, no, he's, and he did nail it, you're right. I mean, even... Even, you know, I love to fish the Potomac, which is, you know, right outside of our offices. And, um, you know, in the, in the spring of the year, tens of thousands of shad will be, begin their migration from the Chesapeake Bay up in the Potomac here to spawn. And I have had moments out there where, whether I'm catching fish or not, you know, it's watching this magical migration of fish coming up the river with big striped bass underneath them that are trying to eat them. And yeah. then the comments come in and the osprey and the bald eagle. And it's a, it's a magical thing to be out there on the water, whether you're catching fish or not. So true. So true. And it's, you, you know, you, you touched on it in, in helping um, the young special needs student, um, but there, it's it's offered solace to so many people in so many different ways. I know Richard's actively involved in the uh, uh, the Bamboo Bend project. Uh, the the you know reeling for healing, healing waters. There's just an innumerable uh, number of uh, tangent groups, if you will, that are are out there just doing that exact same thing every day. It's just it's awesome. Yeah. And what's 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 really cool is that TU is the volunteer labor force for all of them. Rivers of Recovery, Project Healing Waters, Fly Fishing, Wounded Warriors, Wounded Warriors, Quiet Waters. I mean, they all rely on TU members to help them achieve their missions. And and I think that's it's it's as you say it's awesome. There's a I'll tell you a quick story. A couple of years ago, I met a man who had deployed in various theaters, and he couldn't even tell me which some of them were. Five times, five different times, 
and you know he he says that he had PTSD, and you know rather than turn to drugs or drinking, you know or otherwise you know doing something unhealthy to deal with the PTSD, he fished for 30 days straight, <laughs> every day, all day. And around the second week, some people saw him on the water and walked over to him and lent him some flies. And then they would continually talk to him for the next couple of weeks. And they were TU members. And that fella, <laughs> his name is taking me right now. I wrote about him. Uh, he ended up forming the Oklahoma chapter and runs their, uh, the work that they do with veterans in the chapter now. And I think that story can be told probably a thousand times across this organization, whether it's, Oh yeah. Oh cancer yeah. Survivors, Absolutely. Yeah. Real, real recovery, cancer survivors or, um, or veterans or kids, you know, we've got these wonderful organizations that are out there like the Mayfly project working with, you know, foster kids using fishing as a form of therapy for them. So it's just, yeah, it's a, we've all, all of us who fish have experienced the, the peace and the quietude of, you know, casting, especially for me and running water. Um, but to be able to then share that with others who are in some form of need, um, I think it's a, it's almost a form of grace. I love it. I love it. We, Richard and I, um, had the, had the advantage of having, uh, several gentlemen on this year and um uh God, it, it, I, I hope i don't mess his uh first name up but i believe it to be mark Mackey. is that mark, right richard the bamboo bend uh coordinator yeah yeah i mean just almost a mirrored story way too many deployments um and golly richard what did he he did some kind of like mission quest up in Alaska to, to to do his you know to kind of start his healing ways. Yeah, he actually spent I think he he checked out and did a year in Alaska just kind of recovering and uh, he he's uh, he's enthusiastic about how well that worked for him. Wow, that's powerful. It, it is, and it's it just a superior human being and. Um, you know, realized that uh, he, he he'd gotten to the point where he could turn it around and 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 lead and and be that example for others as well, and uh, just fantastic. I, I, I love, love it. it. Love. But uh, but but I do want to hear a little more about your fishing. Um, I I can only imagine that your travels allow you to sample a few waters that might otherwise not be within your purview <laughs> a few uh <laughs> let's see i i i just got back from uh four or five days um in actually in bristol bay um and fished the quijack and the knack and some of those awesome rivers up there what what happens is the uh um there's a big, big, big lake called Lake Iliamna that um, the, some of these rivers flow into. And um, the 
rainbow trout move out of the lake and follow the migration of the salmon. And they feed on their eggs and then they feed on their decaying uh, bodies as well. The, one of the things we do is swing flesh flies um, where we're not imitating an insect. We're just imitating a piece of salmon flesh floating down the river. And uh, the holy grail um, of fishing up there is to catch a 30-inch rainbow trout. Not, and it's not a steelhead. It's a rainbow. And I have fished up there since we started the pebble campaign and caught probably hundreds of, you know, what would be fish of a year in the lower 48, you know, fish in the mid-20s to the upper 20s. But this year was the first year I ever caught my own 30-inch fish on the Knack-Knack River. And um, it's it was massive. And it's one of these uh, fisheries where, you know, we, we probably only got five or six eats during the day, but each fish, you know, had the uh, possibility of being over 30 inches. Three or four 30-inch fish were caught that day. And there is something that just focuses your mind like nothing else about catching or having the prospect of every time you see your indicator move, it's likely that there's a really, really big fish at the other end. <laughs> I can't even imagine. That's amazing. A yeah. 30-inch trout. Oh, good grief. Yeah, not not a whole lot of those up uh, in our stretch of the skinny water, but uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's probably my favorite fishing story um, of the year. And then I also i will be taking a group of donors uh, in the spring down to Argentina, which I, I always enjoy doing. Um, there's a lodge there called the Caralepu Valley Lodge, uh, which is owned by a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, the, the, the fishing is very good. It's not, it's not Bristol Bay-esque, but it's very, very good. But it's just the, the scenery is so spectacular and the people are so, so generous and, and kind. Um, those are two of my favorite places to fish. Actually, if I told you my favorite place, it's probably the Potomac, believe it or not. Um, just because it's the place I fish the most. And, we, uh, I mentioned the shad run we have, but that's just the start of things because then there's a, there's a, a great schoolie striper uh, bite that runs into the, the early summer. Um, the river has uh, really good smallmouth fishing up where, you know, where it's above, uh, with the, above the city, above what we call Little Falls. Really great um, smallie fishing. Uh, believe it or not, we've discovered a gar fishery out there, and um, yeah, we'll tie we'll tie up rope flies and um, cast them to to gar that are suspended in the water. Super fun, and mm. one one of my favorite things to do is to walk along the CNO Canal, which runs along the Potomac River, and look for tailing carp and and sight cast to tailing carp. It's super fun. Richard and I uh, ha have a friend up here that um, is uh, Richard. What is it, what does Dave call that? Is it the the golden trout or oh, <laughs> Dave, like... uh, 
Dave McCool, yeah, he used to he run a carp fishing thing, a golden bone, you know, over on Lake Michigan. There you go. That's right. The golden bone. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. The uh but I but I think it it speaks to that point though, Chris, that it's not just trout and I think in in some cases would it be fair to say it's just not fly fishing. Amen. Amen, I say. Yes, I agree with you. Um I I I have probably just as many spin rods as I do fly rods, and I have a lot of fly rods. Um, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I I mean I I I I do all kinds of fishing. I take my kids out. We we've got blue catfish in the Potomac. We're infested with them now. They're invasive, but we'll go out and use cut bait and catch ten, twelve. I once caught a forty-pound carp, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, blue catfish. So I, I just think it's. I think there's too many people who look down their nose at people who fish with spinning rods or fish with bait. And there, there aren't enough of us in the world who care about, you know, the habitat conditions that are necessary to have healthy fisheries for us to be arguing about the form of angling that we prefer. <laughs> That's my Thank you very much. No, I, yeah. I, I would echo that completely. It's just yeah. it's a target rich environment and there's uh, room at the table for everybody. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Do you, well with 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 that in mind and with with these various species that uh you you're able to avail yourselves of is the is there a particular hatch that might I hesitate to say a favorite but I'll go favorite. Do you have a favorite hatch? I, I don't even want to – we don't – down here, we really don't have great hatches. I do love fishing up in uh, up in the, uh, like, upper Delaware, you know, on the on the uh, west branch of the Delaware, for example, or the east branch. And they have – probably my favorite hatch would be the Hendrickson hatch up there. There <laughs> is on the Potomac a – I think they call it a – it's a big white mayfly – I think it might be called a Miller moth um, that it, it happens at night. And when it happens, if you catch it, everything in the river comes up for it because it's a big white mayfly. And I've only caught it once or twice in all the years I've been fishing here. Um, but there's not really, uh, you know, down in here, there's not, we just don't have great hatches like, like you guys do up in Michigan or, they do in the upper Delaware. Right. Right. I'm sorry. Which story? Yeah. Right. The, um, now with, uh, with that regard, I think that the natural follow-up is, and, and you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, Departing levels uh, the last time with uh, a variety of rods. Do you, is there is there a particular material that you you prefer? You know, a bamboo or a glass rod or one of the newer graphites. You know, um, most of my rods are graphite. Um, I'm a big fan. I want, I want to be careful not to offend any of our, all of the 
one of the things I love about the fly fishing industry, even though it's a very small margin industry, they're incredibly generous. You know, whether it's a local fly shop donating a trip to a local chapter or, you know, a big company like Orbis supporting our efforts in Bristol Bay. Um, they're just incredibly generous. And so uh, I, I probably fish graphite more often than uh, anything else, but I do love – we have a place in West Virginia called the Little Cacapon, and uh, it's got a – it's a, a tributary to the Potomac, and it's mostly a, uh, like, rockfish and uh, smallie streams, no trout in it. But I love fishing um, – my fiberglass, I have a three-weight fiberglass that I just, it's a really slow rod, and it's super fun when you get a, you know, a pound or a pound and a half smallmouth, you know, to see that oh, rod sure. bend over, bend, bend <laughs> over like an ugly stick. <laughs> right? It's it's almost yeah. like it's physically impossible it's going to stay together. <laughs> but, I know, I know. But it's such, it's such a, an amazing sight and tactile response. It's neat. Very neat. It's really cool. And then I had a, I had a wonderful uh, uh, member send me a seven white bamboo rod that he tied himself. He wrapped it himself, and he said, "I know that you enjoy fishing for uh, shad. This is meant to be fished for shad." And so uh, last year was the first time I used it. But I, 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 I have, I'm probably about the only uh, guy on the Potomac who is. Uh, fishing with bamboo periodically. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. it. That's really well, it's fun. A big, it, it's a big toolbox, and, there, and there's a lot of be ha- fun to be had in uh, in any of those venues. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. So exactly. If I may, I'm going to switch gears just a touch. Um, we've got a, and again. Uh, we, I don't want to delve too deeply into the politics, but um, we do have a, an area of concern in uh, Upper Michigan um, with a proposed uh, National Guard expansion, and uh, I, I think that that is starting to gain a little traction. I know that our our local state leadership, uh, under the guidance of Brian Burroughs, is. Uh, is taking an active position on it. And um, Richard came up with a great line that uh, maybe this is our little Bristol Bay event um, on a smaller scale. Well, I know, I know about the base expansion that you're describing and, you know, it would, I'm not on the ground and I don't have the knowledge of Brian. Full respect, yeah. Yeah, but, um, you know, I think this is probably appropriate for, for for your audience, but, you know, those who don't study history are condemned to repeat the past. And um, there are so many examples of how ill-advised developments came back to haunt us. I mean, the, the, I think about the founding of Trout Unlimited on the banks of the Osable. It was basically founded by a group of anglers who, were two, two of whom were part, part of your chapter, uh, if mm-hmm. not more than two of them, um, who 
you know, they were tired of the state masking the effects of habitat degradation by stocking ever more, you know, cookie cutter hatchery trout. And, mm-hmm. um, and they did something about it. And, uh, you know, these are rivers like the Osable and other rivers. They're remarkably resilient and, and they will respond to restoration. But in the case of this expansion, it's a lot easier to not do something stupid <laughs> than it is to have to go back and spend years, if not decades, trying to recover um, a healthy, functioning river system. And I think that's hopefully a lesson that the Army will ultimately remember. We we, we trust that to be the case. And, you know, it, recently um, Richard and I sat down um, – with with a member of Brian's staff, Kristen uh, uh, Thomas, uh, who's uh, an aquatic biologist and has recently done a massive uh, helicopter drop of woody debris in the Upper Manistee, and it's it, it's <laughs> you know again at, at the risk of using cliches, you know wood is good, and. Uh, <laughs> This is uh, this has been just a, a super super effort, and it's it, I, 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 I hesitate to declare, but I think you're we're already seeing, you know, trout head into that structure. And uh, for our listeners, uh, Kristen's episode will be up here um, tomorrow, I believe, uh, which. Uh, means nothing to uh, the recording, but uh, that'll be um, on Friday the 21st. And then, uh, Chris, I think uh, you'll come up uh, uh, midweek uh, of the following week. But um, it's it, it, it's just, again, just the innumerable acts. And, and obviously Richard and I are aware of our local stuff, but this is happening in virtually every chapter across the country. Yep. And it's just, it's incredible. Um, what, what a little, you know, a little time and a little effort can, can yield such a gigantic result. No, that's right. And, you know, our, our chapters and state councils, of course, but our chapters are really, they're the, they're the ones who have to keep, you know, those that want to develop resources honest. You know, we, we have to be able to obviously develop our natural resources, but we've got to do it in a way that helps to protect and conserve them in the future. And um, I, just, I just respect and appreciate the fact that we have so many people who are out there, the eyes and ears, basically the conscience of, of their communities, helping to keep our waterways intact. Excellent, 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 excellent. The uh, so I guess the fair question, Chris, is uh, outside of uh, perhaps your personal what's next. Uh, what what what's next nationally? I guess. Well, the Bristol. I mean, sorry, the Snake Campaign is is going to be a major priority for us as an organization. And that, as I say, okay. that. 
we're looking at a multi, that's a multi-year effort. Um, one of the things that I think is really cool, I mentioned that we went through a strategic planning process. As part of that, we work with councils and chapters to develop a set of priority waters, we call them. And um, the thinking behind that was, uh, you know, if we, I call it, I liken it to the Tom Sawyer approach to conservation. Uh, you'll remember Aunt Polly got mad at Tom and uh, punished him by making him whitewash the fence. And right. Tom went out. Tom went out and pretended to have so much fun doing it that soon, you know, all of his friends came over, and he ended up sitting under a shade tree sipping lemonade while they painted the fence for him. And that's kind of the approach that we're hoping to take with our priority waters. And the thinking is that there should be no or little distinction between the priorities of a chapter or a council or of the national organization. And that, that just makes sense. But if you take it to scale, the potential is awesome because right now we leverage tens of millions of dollars a year. We'll end up this year probably around 80 million or 85 million in revenues. But if we could leverage the resources of our various fish and game agencies or agencies like the Forest Service and the BLM, instead of leveraging tens of millions of dollars, you're leveraging hundreds of millions of dollars for conservation, for the things that we think are important. And the passage of the infrastructure law and the inaptly named uh, Inflation Reduction Act, and I'm, that's not a political statement. I, I, I no, no. <laughs> my mom is from Ireland, and the IRA has a is not a resonant term. <laughs> no, no, no. It, 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 it's it's nothing to do with with Ireland or or with individual retirement accounts. It it, it is an odd name. <laughs> but it is it is uh, you know it, it it's it's there are literally tens of billions of dollars in those two bills that are applied to uh, programs that we really care about, like fish passage at the, at the Fish and Wildlife Service or various basins like the Delaware Basin or the Klamath Basin, which received tens of millions of dollars. The Great Lakes Restoration Initiative received a billion dollars. Um, we have more funding for restoration than we have ever had in my lifetime right now available over the next five years. We just inked a deal with the Forest Service for $40 million over five years that we're going to apply to conservation on the ground. And so I think of this national network of priority waters that we've developed with this incredible uh, proliferation of resources that they just pre present us with an incredible opportunity over the next five years. And my job is to try to make sure that TU is really well positioned to take advantage of that opportunity because it's, it, it, it only, I mean, it's never happened before in my lifetime. So those are the things I'm really excited about. We've got some major policy issues like, uh, you know, reestablishing the protections of the clean water act for, you know, headwater systems, small, you know, intermittent mm -hmm. and ephemeral stream. Um, we've got other, uh, we'll have other policy issues that will arise throughout the year, but 
the opportunity to, uh, you know, protect, reconnect, and restore river systems at scale is unique to this time. And uh, I want to make sure that as an organization, we're so well positioned to take advantage of that, right? We have deep relationships with all these agencies that have this funding and we're very good at what we do. You know, we, we don't do very many things at TU, but the things that we do, we do them really well. And um, I just think we're in a position uh, to take conservation to scale uh, that, that may never happen again. So it's, it's just, a, it's a very exciting time. Well, in, in, for, from, from our angle as a historical society and, and, and home to Michigan's only museum of trout fishing history, it's really cool to hear you say that and because it, it, it's a historic moment. Uh, these are head-spinning numbers. Yes. They're, I mean, it's, it's hundreds of billions of dollars for things that we really care about. Um, and, you know, part of what our job is, is to uh, publicize and promote the effectiveness of these projects, whether they're wood drops like you were describing or uh, replacing culverts with bridges or uh, replanting, you know, uh, deforested areas, whatever it is, our job is to publicize the benefits of that work so that our elected leaders understand that investments in conservation are good investments and people support them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we just, um, the Michigan DNR has just announced, I want to say it's over a million and a half dollars of funding uh, for a variety of activities relative to the state's fisheries and aquatic resources. Um, Obviously, with a keen eye on habitat conservation, but dam dam removal and repair, and you know resource assessment, and you know the stuff like Kristen's doing and and other folks. It's just it's just really neat that all of a sudden, it even in these challenging economic times, here's this money that's out here and. God forbid any of it goes unspent, you know, um, exactly. with, with, with so many targets available. That's exactly right. The uh, Chris, you're, you're a heck of a gentleman, and, and I can't thank you enough. I know your schedule is jam-packed, and uh, we're, we're truly grateful that you were able to take time from your day to uh, – to sit down and chat with us and share some of these uh, remarkable events with our listenership and uh, hopefully inspire and uh, invigorate others to get even more involved. Well, uh, John and Richard, you guys are very kind to uh, to have me and uh, appreciate all that you do and look forward to visiting you at the, uh, at the museum sometime soon. We'll look, we, we will definitely look forward to that, Chris. Uh, our, our last visit was completely enjoyable, and we'll look forward to the next one. Excellent. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Chris. I hope you have a great day. Continue doing wonderful things, and uh, Richard and I will look forward to talking to you soon, sir. Okay. Bye-bye.
Well, that was pretty cool. The, um, there's a lot of hope for the future. There's a lot of cool things happening right now, and there are more than uh, enough opportunities for people that wish to be involved uh, to get involved. And if you're on the fence post, get involved. It's a good time. All right. Um, we've still got a couple of more uh, podcasts to come for the season. Um, in spite of electrical outages, internet outages, uh, sinus infection, and whatever else, uh, we've still got a couple to go. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, hope you enjoyed Chris, and I think you're going to enjoy the next two as well. So take care, everybody, and until next time, mind your backcast. <laughs>